Shalom. This is Mark Robinson, Executive Director of Jewish Awareness Ministries. Welcome to Jewish Awareness Podcast, a teaching ministry of Jewish Awareness Ministries. On Friday nights at our headquarters, we host a Bible study. Generally, we do verse-by-verse studies of different books of the Bible. Through the years, these studies have looked at the books of Isaiah, Ezekiel, John, and Hebrews. At times, we will have studies devoted to Jewish cultural events or issues relating to Israel and prophecy. These studies can be viewed live through the JAM Facebook live stream platform on Fridays. If you have questions or would like additional information, go to our website, jewishawareness.org. Email us at office at jewishawareness.org or call us at 919-275-4477. This information will be repeated at the end of the podcast. Enjoy the Bible study. Uh, In January, uh, Iran has secreted away uh, all, what was it, half a ton or two tons, I forget. Um, a a massive amount of information on their nuclear program and their uh, desire to develop nuclear weapons. Well, Israel went in secretly, stole all the documents. Uh, Again, I'm I'm looking on here to see the the weight, and I don't see it, but it's half a ton to two tons, something like that. But this thing here says, new details have emerged about the Mossad's daring mission in Tehran. Through it successfully captured half a ton, there it is, half a ton of documents on Iran's secret and illicit nuclear program. A New York Times report on Monday quoted a senior Israel official who said that Israel's Mossad intelligence service discovered the warehouse located in the Shorabad suburb in southern Tehran in February 2016, and had the building under surveillance since then. Um, Mossad, I'm not going to read this whole thing. Mossad operatives broke into the building one night last January, removed the original documents, and smuggled them back to Israel the same night, the Times said. Uh, Israel had a shot. News reported that the files were moved from the Islamic Republic Uh, during a hot pursuit with Iranian security forces on their tails. This would make a great movie, you know. um, So um, it it certainly would. Um, It's an amazing thing that that they uncovered uh, all of this stuff and shows the duplicity of Iran and this whole thing, which shouldn't be surprising to us. um, But to uncover it and to show it to the world... um, very, very interesting. Um, what Mossad's unit is able to do, uh, they've got tentacles all around the world, uh, all around the world. And um, I, I remember I've, I've shared this sometimes on our, our trips to Israel, but Cheryl and I have a, a couple who are friends, I haven't seen them in a number of years now, in uh, southern Florida, John and Linda. But we knew also, or I knew, did you know Linda's dad? Okay, Cheryl didn't know Linda's dad. 
Um, Belinda's dad was a senior um, engineer, electronics engineer, I guess, from Motorola. And he specifically, he was pretty high up in the country, and he specifically requested um, work in the Arab world. That's where he wanted to go. So he went to Saudi Arabia and Motorola sent him these places. Motorola, I guess, has tentacles everywhere. And the reason he requested that is because he, he, had, he was a Gentile who had a love for Israel. I'm not recommending this. I'm just telling the story. Um, and he was a professing believer. But he went to Israel um, at one point and contacted the Mossad and said, I want to be an agent for you. So he became a Mossad agent, and that's why he wanted to be stationed in the Arab world so he could find out what he could find out about what was happening uh, and then get the information back to uh, Israel. He did that for many, many years. When he retired, they actually gave him citizenship, Israel did, and he ended up retiring, met, met, married an Israeli woman, uh, and uh, ended up living in Kiryat Shemona. That's up in the, uh, the very north of Israel. Um, and uh, one of the few Gentiles that they gave citizenship to uh, because of his work for the Mossad. So it doesn't surprise me at all now. They found out about it. How did they get into this locked facility? How did they get it. They had to have guards there. I don't have answers to that. Um, that's why it'd be a great movie one day. So, but um, uh, interesting. So, yes? I think it's in the middle of, middle of May sometime, the 14th or the 16th, sometime around, if I, or it's coming up. Pardon? Or the twelfth, the twelfth. Uh, I know the 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 official move of the embassy, I guess, is on May fourteenth, and he may be going over for that from uh, the the U.S. embassy to Jerusalem. And uh, we passed the spot. Our guide pointed out to us, and one one of the guys. This was our recent trip in April. We got to stop. We got to go back. This is historic. We've got to go back and see the spot. And uh, we didn't. Uh, it's hard to, you know, he, he said that about two miles down the road. And um, so, but um, we, had, we, we passed the spot where the new embassy will be located uh, when we're in Israel. So, anyway, um, we're going to be in uh, Hebrews tonight. Hebrews chapter 4 as we move on. But this uh, is a continuation. Uh, if you remember from the last time we were in Hebrews, and let me turn there in the Bible, it's really the warning passage that, that started in chapter 3 of Hebrews, and we picked it up, oh, in verse 8. Harden not your hearts as in the provocation, the day of temptation in the wilderness. Now, just some background, which we, you'll probably continually be reminded of by me as we go through this. 
but it's so vitally important to understand this book. Uh, there are two groups of people in view here. There are, and, and you're going to see it tonight in chapter 4, perhaps in, in a clearer way than any other portion of the book of Hebrews. But those two groups, both groups being Jewish, but a group of Jewish people who truly are saved, uh, normally referred to as those who are possessing believers. They possess the Lord. The Lord is theirs. They are children of God. But then you have another group who are professing Jewish believers. And the five warning passages in Hebrews, chapter 2, 3, through, and 4, uh, chapter 6, chapter 10, chapter 12, uh, all of those warning passages are addressed to these professing believers because they were in danger of falling back to the religious system, to the uh, welcome buzz. Come on in. We, we got a front row seat for you. You get a bottle of water. Okay. That's right. You might get the disease. So, um, and you left Jennifer home, obviously. Okay. But you can go back and she can come. And, no. Um, okay, see, he comes in and gets me way off base here. Um, so you have two groups professing and possessing Jewish people. The possessors are truly saved. The professing ones are not saved. Um, now, this certainly can be applied to our world today. You have people who are truly saved, you Jew and Gentile truly know the Lord. You have people who profess the Lord. And the Bible is replete, the New Testament is replete with passages that tell us or warn us about wolves in sheep's clothing. Well, a sheep is, you know, Jesus is the, the shepherd, the sheep are the followers. Well, if you're a wolf in sheep's clothing, you're pretending to be true, but you're not. It talks about the uh, wheat and the tares, and, and they look alike. But one is good, one is not. So there, there, there's all kinds of warnings that you'll find uh, that are very applicable to today. Um, I should have brought it in with me, but that's all right. Um, I have mentioned it different places. Maybe I mentioned it here. Uh, but I, got, I did get an email, not this. It, it's around the subject that I mentioned. I got an email yesterday, I guess it was, from Menno Kalisher. A number of you know Menno. Uh, I know uh, Alan April know him. Uh, a few of us, anyway, here know. Menno is uh, the pastor of a church in Jerusalem, perhaps, in my opinion, the, the best church you'll find in all of Israel. He's a dynamic man uh, and just got a really dynamic ministry. Well, he, when he sent this email out, he said, uh, I, I forget how it reads. Um, no, I don't even have my phone on me to pull it up. So I'm going to paraphrase. He said, all of us at different times in, in life are sometimes struck with, by lightning. I think that's the type of analogy he was giving. And he said, this happened to me in the last few weeks. And he goes on to talk about this individual who uh, was a Bible teacher, has written books, um, has been in Israel for probably close to 25 years now. 
but, and has been very solid, but just a couple of months ago, uh, denied the deity of Christ, denied the Trinity, denied the personality of the Holy Spirit, and just apostatized. And uh, Menno, go, Menno met with him, because they're not only did he know him, they're, they're friends, and uh, the arrogance of this guy. Uh, he wouldn't repent. Uh, did I tell you the story? I told you some of it, probably, you know. Um, I bring it up. Well, let me talk about the arrogance. <laughs> so, he's American-born. Um, so, he, he learned Hebrew, probably took some Hebrew classes in Bible college. He went to Bible college in San Diego. Uh, when he went to Israel, certainly became more proficient in Hebrew, for example. Uh, but Menno was born in Israel. Hebrew is his native tongue. Uh, grew up, went to school, learned it. So who is more than likely to know more about Hebrew? This transplanted American or a native-born Israeli? Well, I think it's pretty obvious. Well, in his arrogance, he said, you, you know, you, don't, you just don't understand Hebrew. And that's why you don't understand what I've come to understand. Well, others have talked to him, but it reminds me, and, and certainly he's a unique case. It's not the same situation in Hebrews here, but he's apostatized. He's uh, fallen away. Now, and I don't want to go down this road too much tonight. Um, in a couple of weeks, I'm going to be doing it in the ABF, going down the road a little bit further because I've talked to them about it. Uh, it actually falls in with something I'm teaching in the Sunday school teaching church. But anyway, it brings us to a quandary, in a sense. You know, here's a guy, I don't know when he professes to be saved. Maybe he was a teenager. Maybe he was five years old. He went to a very reputable Bible college. After Bible college... Ultimately, I don't know the, the whole time frame of this, but worked for uh, a very reputable Bible college and went to Israel and was a Bible teacher and has produced books and, and so on, but now denies the deity of Christ, now denies the Trinity, which is, I mean, if, if, if you've been here for the study of Hebrews and Hebrews chapter 1, you know, one of, the, one of the clearest teachings on the deity of Jesus, the deity of the Messiah, uh, is found in Hebrews chapter 1, because Hebrews is a book of contrasts. Jesus is better than the angels. That's chapter 1. Why is he better than the angels? Because he's God. And the, the, the argument that the writer of Hebrew gives, he quotes from the Old Testament. Well, is this guy saved? So <laughs> That's certainly a major option, yes. Um, Obviously, you're either saved or you're not. We can all agree that he's either saved or he's not saved. But it brings that, that, that quandary into our, you know, how could you after, I don't know how many years, 25, 30 years of teaching solid Bible doctrine, all of a sudden switch? Either he wasn't saved and he's now flown his true colors, or if he is saved, I guarantee you he will be beat up, he'll be disciplined. Let me put it in that, 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 that regard by God. Um, 
because he's been talked to by not just Menno Kalacher, he was flown to uh, Cary to meet with some people at Shepherd's Theological Seminary. He was flown out to California to meet some more people there, and he's just said, you don't know what y'all are talking about. I'm right. And so he was fired from his position. The elders dismissed him from the church that he was involved with uh, in Israel. But it's the type of situation, in a sense, that we're looking at here in Hebrews. You had these people who were professing believers. And they were in danger of going back to Mosaism. More than Judaism, Mosaism. But, and there, there, was a, there was an attractiveness to that. Primarily because the temple was still standing. Hebrews was written before the destruction of the temple. The temple was ordained by God. The sacrificial system was ordained by God. The priesthood was ordained by God. You can go back and see it in Leviticus and, and all those scriptures. So here you have this temple, and for, oh, if you want to go all the way back to the tabernacle, about 1400 B.C., you have somewhere in the neighborhood of 1500 years of sacrifice and, and tabernacle-slash-temple tradition. So you can see the, the allurement, the, the draw, as it were, to drag you back to this old system. That's what the Hebrews is about. Something much better has come along, which is Jesus. Um, and that's why you have the warning here um, and in all the different warning passages. And in verse uh, of, of chapter 3, in verse 8, the command, harden not your hearts, as in the provocation, the day of temptation, the wilderness. So he said, don't be like your fathers in the wilderness. How many of those in the wilderness hardened their heart that they were not allowed or able to go into the promised land? Well, not all of them, everybody over 20, which is a good number of them. They hardened their heart. And so the, the warning is, don't harden your heart, which implies that we have the ability to harden our heart, obviously. Uh, you know, uh, and, and they were in danger of hardening their heart to the truth and going back to Mosaism, in essence, turning their back on the Lord, turning their back on Jesus. So he's warning them, don't do that. Well, we looked at, and I know it was a couple of weeks ago or so that we looked at it, but it's talking about the rest that they could have, and the rest that he's talking about is ultimately the rest in the kingdom, in the millennial kingdom. He, he compares the rest that they didn't get back in the time of Moses which was going into the promised land because they, they hardened their heart. They didn't have faith. And, and the extrapolation from that, the comparison here, is ultimately the millennial kingdom. There's another rest that you can have, the millennial kingdom. Well, what we're going to see tonight is if you want to get into the kingdom, you first have to know the king. Because that is foundational. That is axiomatic. That is... Uh, first and foremost, what is important. If you want to get in the kingdom and have the rest that God's going to provide in the kingdom, and there will be rest. You know, we're, you know there's, there's wars. You had a good friend in, um, I heard yesterday that, uh, <clears throat> I talked to him today, he called me today in Florida. His house was broken in yesterday or two days ago robbed the middle of the day. And thankfully, neither he nor his wife were home. And uh, so they got some jewelry and um, without going all the details. And uh, 
he didn't have a security system. He didn't have a gun. He says, now I have both. <laughs> so, uh, but um, we live in a, in, in a troubled world. There's, re there's no rest in this world. Never will be. But there will be rest in the kingdom. There will, you know, it'll be peace. It'll be Jesus ruling and so on. But you have to know him. So what we have here in the introduction that I have put down to Hebrews 4, 1 through 6, is after the warning of Hebrews 3, 7 through 19, the writer of Hebrews exhorts those who profess Jesus Messiah, profess, not possess, profess Jesus Messiah, but don't possess him as they are not true believers, to come to the true rest that God provides. And again, back in chapter 3, harden not your hearts. The worst thing you could possibly, don't harden your hearts to what, the truth of the Word of God is. <clears throat> the text in front of us tonight clearly delineates between us, which would be possessing believers, and them, professing believers. So if you have any question about there being two groups of people in view in the book of Hebrews, us and them, and us being saved and them being just professing believers, uh, it'll be put to rest tonight. You'll see it, I think you'll see it extremely clearly. Uh, so the us and the them. Now, as discussed in the previous section, the rest is ultimately being in the kingdom of God, the millennial kingdom of God, which is spoken about. But um, in this portion of Scripture, rest is conditioned upon the gospel and believing it. The difference between the two groups, and you, and you can extrapolate this to today as well, obviously. Different type of thing today. We don't have, you know, most people, do, most people that claim to be Christians are not Jewish people, right? They're Gentiles. Gentiles have never had a temple. They've never had a sacrificial system. That was given to Israel and the Jewish people. So it's not the exact you know, parallel, uh, but you've got professing believers to do, today. And, and in our churches today, our good Bible-believing churches, I think there are a lot of people who just pr profess the Lord. They're not truly born again. For whatever reason, they haven't come to the Lord. So in this portion of Scripture, rest is conditioned upon the gospel and believing it. The difference between the two groups is one believed in the Lord with their head and their heart, and the other with only their head. As previously, uh, the writer commanded them not to harden their hearts. Now the command is to believe. Now, turn, I don't have the verse down here. Turn to Romans chapter 10 before we go on here. When someone comes to the Lord, I think there are three elements at work in a person's life. The intellect, the emotion, and the will. And, and you can see that in a number of portions of Scripture. Um, 
oh, I don't know how far off track I want to get or how, how much I want to, to digress. Uh, but in the book of Jonah, before we look at um, the book of um, Romans, if you go back to uh, the book of Jonah, Now, Jesus, when he had condemned Chorazin and Bethsaida, said, if they would have seen the miracles, Jesus, that you have seen, Jonah at that time, they would have repented at the preaching of Jonah. Nineveh is talking about. Nineveh was a very wicked society. Well, they would have repented at the preaching of Jonah they would have come to the Lord. Now, look at chapter, uh, oh, I think it's four that I want us to look about. Now, look at chapter three. Starting in verse one. And the word of the Lord came unto Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go unto Nineveh, the great city, and preach unto it the preaching that I have bid thee. So Jonah arose and went unto Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord, now Nineveh was an exceeding great city of three days' journey. And Jonah began to enter into the city's journey and cried and said, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So Jonah preached to him. The people had to exercise their intellect. They had to think about what he was saying. When you, when you come to a Bible study, when you hear a message preached, you use your intellect, you use your mind, you use your thought process, you think, right, about what is being said. And so the people exercised uh, their intellect. Jonah went in, he started to preach unto them, and uh, they, look at verse 5, so the people of Nineveh believed God, and proclaimed a fast, and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them, even to the least of them. Um, they believe God. They exercise their intellect. They believe what God said. But they also got, it, it, it convicted their heart. Putting on sackcloth is, is a picture of humility. It's a picture of repentance. When you put on sackcloth and ashes, it's, it's, you're humbling yourself. So it speaks to the issue of their heart. They understood that they needed to be humble before God. Um, and they were. The, the, the people of Nineveh, verse 5, believed God. They proclaimed a fast, put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them even to the least of them. Then verse 6, for the word came unto the king of Nineveh. He rose from his throne, laid his robe from him, and covered him with sackcloth, sat in ashes. And he caused it to be pro proclaimed and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed nor drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily unto God. Yea, let them turn every one from his evil way and from the violence that is in their hands. Who can tell if God will turn and repent and turn away from the fierce anger that we perish not? And God saw their works that they turned from their evil way. And God repented of the evil that he had said that he would do unto them. So they listened to the preaching. They considered what was being said. They used their mind or their intellect, if you will. And intellect 
uh, it's just you, they thought about it. They understood in their heart that this was true. But the third part that comes with this is volition, will. You have to be, you can, you can hear it, you can believe it in your heart, but the third part is, is will. You have to be willing to turn and go God's way. Now, that's true in salvation uh, anytime in history. And we look what happened here um, when the king says to him, um, uh, you know, cover yourselves with sackcloth and ashen, ashes. Let every man turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in their hands. Verse 10, God saw their works that they turned from their evil way. They chose to turn from their sinful deeds. Now, this is not talking about salvation of individuals. This is the judgment of God coming upon a nation and the repentance when Jesus said that the judgment on Nineveh never would have happened if they would have seen the miracles that was done in Chorazin and Bethsaida and so on where Jesus did his miracles and they would have repented, they would have turned to God based on the truth. We look at what happened in Nineveh. It's the intellect, the emotion, and the will. Now, Romans chapter 10. Look at verse 8. But what saith it? Thy word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth, in thy heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. Now again, if something is preached or something is taught, one must use their intellect, their mind, their thought process. They must think about it to de determine whether it's right or wrong. Then verse 9, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart... Man believes unto righteousness with the mouth confessions made unto salvation. So it's not just having an intellectual understanding, but it starts with the intellect. You hear the word of God, whether it's taught, whether it's preached, whether you read it in a, uh, a, a, the Bible or a book or, or whatever the case might be. It starts with the intellect, but then you have to believe it in your heart. But then as it goes down here, and, and, and it talks, there's no difference, um, verse 11, between, verse 11, whosoever believes on him shall not be ashamed. 12, no difference between the Jew and the Gentile, the same Lord is over all. Then verse 13, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. There's the volition. You have to choose to call upon the name of the Lord. And so when we look at the salvation, all three of those aspects come into being if you're truly saved. Go with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. I, I'm adding a whole bunch of stuff I didn't write down. So uh, look at 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Look at verse 10. For godly sorrow 
works repentance to salvation, not to be repented of. Not, in other words, it will never change then. Godly sorrow works repentance to salvation. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, I'm in, verse 10. But then look at the next phrase. But the sorrow of the world works death. So how many sorrows do we have in this verse? Two. You have a godly sorrow. You have a worldly sorrow. Godly sorrow will bring ultimately what? Change, but what's the other? Salvation. Salvation. Worldly sorrow. Death. Separation from God. No salvation. That's, and so sorrow is the emotion. Now, that doesn't mean to get saved you have to cry. You know, when I got saved, I didn't cry. But I got saved. You may have accepted the Lord through tears. I don't know. You maybe didn't. It does, you know, so sorrow here is not equated with tears. It's, it's, it's equated with the heart. So it starts with the intellect. You hear the message. And then you are quickened in your heart. You are convicted in your heart. And that, ultimately, if you have godly sorrow, that will lead you to salvation the volitional part of it, calling on the Lord. Now, the difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow, probably the best way to illustrate that, um, if you have a child, 10-year-old, gets home from school, dinner's in an hour, mom's cooked some nice chocolate chip cookies for dessert, and the smell is wafting through the kitchen, and little Johnny, who's 10 years old, man, does he want one of those cookies. So he goes to grab a cookie, and mom sees him. Says, Johnny, no cookie now. Says, dinner's in an hour or so. After dinner, but not now. Well, Johnny's old nature says to himself, why can't you have it now? Mom turns around and goes out of the kitchen and Johnny sneaks back in and grabs a cookie and eats it. But he leaves a chocolate chip all, you know. <laughs> and mom comes in and, and, and says, Johnny, Johnny, I told you not to eat a cookie. I didn't eat a cookie, mom. Well, what's all that chocolate chip? Oh, I'm sorry, mom. I'm sorry, and, and, and so mom says, well, now you're going to be punished because you disobeyed a very direct command that I gave you. Don't eat the cookie. So I got to give you a spanking. And Johnny starts crying. Please, mom, please don't spank me. I didn't mean to eat that cookie. Please, please don't spank me. Now, was Johnny sorry that he disobeyed mom or was Johnny sorry that he got caught and was going to be punished yeah, exactly that's worldly sorrow wanting to get out of the punishment godly sorrow is mom I'm wrong I shouldn't have done it forgive me and whatever punishment you want to give me I deserve and I accept 
Godly sorrow works repentance to salvation, not to be changed, but worldly sorrow works death. It's, it's, it's a thing of the heart. It's a thing of the emotion. And, and once you understand what the Lord has done, and, and God, I deserve the wrath of God. I deserve your punishment. But Lord, you have provided a substitute. You have provided your son. You have provided Jesus in my place that I can be forgiven. And then the, then the volition comes in. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You have to be willing to call on the name of the Lord. And so within, and when you got saved or when I got saved, you may not have thought of all of these things. But when you look back at it, you say, you know, that's, you should say anyway, but you know, that's right. You know, the intellect was involved because I heard the Bible taught. I heard about Jesus, that, that he loved me and died for me, rose from the grave and so on and so forth. And, and I was convicted that I'm a sinner and I need him. And I understood that Jesus died for me and paid my sins. And then I called upon the name of the Lord. That is intellect, emotion, and will. And if you did that, you got saved. The problem here in Hebrews, they had the intellect. They, they knew all about. Jesus. They were professing believers. The professing believers, whether they had that heart understanding, that emotion involved, uh, certainly it didn't lead them to godly sorrow in calling upon the name of the Lord. Because they are lost. So the warning is to them. So look what it says in verse 1. Let us therefore fear lest a promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. So the writer of the Hebrews, and this is very common, I put down a, a verse out of Romans, but very common for the, for the authors of Scripture is, is the empathy that they have with the people they're trying to reach oftentimes. You certainly see it here. You know, back in chapter 3, don't harden your hearts like your fathers did. Let us therefore fear, and he's identifying here, he's identifying with these people. Let us, we need to be fearful. You need to be fearful. I mean, if you don't come to true saving faith, not only do you not enter into God's rest, but you've got something so much worse down the road. So, I'm fearful. You should be fearful. This guy in Israel should be fearful that he's so blinded, who's denied the deity of Christ. I would not want to be in his shoes. Mercy. I would not want to be where he is. I guarantee. He, he, he. Oh, man. Is, and, 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 you, and he was either lost and covered it up for 25, 30 years, whatever, or he saved, and he's still saved, and God's going to discipline him upside down, right and left, front and back, uh, if he doesn't get right. I mean, and ultimately, sin unto death. Um, you cannot, will not, never lose your salvation once you're saved. And um, I'm looking forward to getting into chapter 6. I know we're only in chapter 4. So we still got all of, the rest of chapter 4, we got chapter 5. But chapter 6 of Hebrews is one of the most 
misunderstood portions of the Word of God. The early part of Hebrews, it's invariably taught by people saying you can lose your salvation. No, you can't. They don't understand it. And actually, in chapter 6 is one of the strongest portions of the Word of God on eternal security. I think there, there are a number of, I know I'm getting a little ahead of myself, but um, there, are, there are a number of ways in the Bible that God encourages believers that once saved, always saved. That term's not used, but eternal security. Uh, he does it in the end of chapter 8 in Romans. He does it with the correct biblical understanding of predestination. We'll probably look at some of these when we look at chapter 6 of Hebrews. But in the end of Hebrews chapter 6, the last portion, maybe chapter 8 is the exception. There is probably no other stronger portion of the Word of God to establish the security that God's children have in Him that we cannot, will not, never, ever, no way, lose our salvation. But we're not there yet. So we'll just, you know, you'll have to come back. <clears throat> but, he, but the writer's concerned. Let us therefore fear, left, left, lest a promise being left us of entering into his arrest, any of you should seem to come short of it. We have a promise to come into his rest. I don't want you to fall short. If you fall short, what happens? You don't enter in. So the writer of Hebrews is, is exercised, if you will. He is just broken over what is taking place with these people. Don't harden your hearts. I, I'm fearful. You should be fearful that the promise of entering into God's rest, that you should, you should come short of that promise. God forbid that it should happen. You know, Paul in, in Romans chapter 9 said this, I say the truth in Christ, I, I lie not my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. For I could wish that myself were a curse from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. He was just burdened about his Jewish brethren. I wish I could be a curse, Paul said. I would be willing to go to hell, Paul says, if they could be saved. You know, think on that for a second. How long is hell? Forever. How hot is hell? The lake of fire. How isolated are you in, in, in the lake? It's really the lake of fire is the correct terminology. How isolated is one in the lake of fire eventually? Totally. You can hear other people, but you can't see them. You're not with them. It's dark. It's hot. It's isolated, it's the lake of fire, it's for eternity. And yet Paul says, I am willing to do that, go to hell, the lake of fire, be accursed, if my brethren could be saved. I can't say that. I can't say that. Do I want to see people saved? Yes. But I can't say what Paul said. Right there is the major difference between me and Paul. There's a lot of other differences too, but that's the major difference. 
theirs is hard. Well, the writer of Hebrews, the same thing. He was so fearful that these people wouldn't fall short. Now, how would they fall short? Look at verse 2. For unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them. Now, here where the, here's the delineation comes very clear. Unto us was the gospel preached. It was also preached to them. But the word preached, the gospel in other words, the word of God, the word preached did not profit them. Why? Not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. That's the, that's the dividing line. That's the demarcation. That's the separation. Both of us heard the gospel. But us, we, it benefited because we mixed the hearing of it with the believing of it, of exercising faith. Which ultimately would be the intellect, the emotion, and the will. But them, they heard it. They heard the same message. They heard that Jesus is the Messiah. They heard that he died for their sins. They heard that he fulfilled all the messianic prophecies, that he was uh, born in Bethlehem, born of a virgin, very God himself, and, and, and on and on and on. They heard it. It's not that they didn't know about it, but they did not exercise faith. It wasn't mixed, their intellect, with their heart belief. With a heart, man believes, right? Romans 10, with the heart, man believes unto righteousness. They didn't believe. They knew it intellectually. It wasn't mixed with faith. So, you've got, the, the contrast here is just crystal clear. Us and them. The gospel preached. What, what's the gospel? Well, we are told, first, what's the good news? 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4. Here it is. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel, which I preached unto, which you also you have received, wherein you stand, by which also you are saved, if you keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless you have believed in vain. In other words, unless you didn't believe with your heart. Unless this is just an intellectual exercise. For I delivered you, verse unto you, first of all, that which I also received. Here's the gospel. How that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. And that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures. Now, at this point, what are the scriptures they had? The Old Testament. The New Testament was being lived out, being written, in the case of Paul. They had the Old Testament. So back in the Old Testament, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of the Messiah was preached unto us. But you've got to believe with all your heart. It's not just an intellectual exercise. You know, churches in America, and around the world for that matter, will be, uh, well, I was going to say filled with people on Sunday. Some will not be so full. But there'll be people in those buildings 
and they may read a verse of scripture, they may hear about Jesus, they may give lip service to Jesus being the Son of God, dying for the sins of the world. Uh, so intellectually, they may know some stuff, but they've never mixed it with faith. And they're just as desperate a situation as these people here. The gospel is the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus. Verse 3 and 4 again. I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. So he died. And why did he die? For your sin. So it's not just an intellectual exercise that Jesus died on the cross for the sins of the world. He died for my sins. He died for your sins and your sins. Each of our sins. He died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried and he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. That's, that's the good news. That's the gospel. And so we are given it in a nutshell. So we have to understand we're a, savior, uh, a sinner. Uh, Romans 3 and verses 20 and 23 says, Therefore by the deeds of the law there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. God gave the Mosaic law that you can align your life with the Mosaic law. And how well do you keep the Mosaic law? Any individual? Not well at all. You're a sinner. You're separated from God. We need to realize we're a sinner. Uh, in Romans chapter 6 verse 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, Lord. Sin will bring you death. Death is just, it is, it, it's not just physical death, it's spiritual death. Death, biblically, and you should always remember this when you think of death in the Bible. Death, biblically, is separation. Think of Adam. Think of Eve. What did God tell them in the garden? See that fruit of the uh, tree of the knowledge of good and evil? If you eat the fruit of that tree, thou shalt surely die. So what did they do? Ate of the, the fruit. Did they die? Spiritually. Because physically, it took almost a thousand years, at least we know, for Adam to die. But they died immediately spiritually because death is separation. They were separated from God. Physical death brings separation from the body. Spiritual death brings separation from God. Think of the rich, you remember the story of the rich ruler and Lazarus in Luke chapter 16 and, and the rich ruler died. But where did he end up? In hell. Was he just a corpse? He was alive. He understood spiritual things. He pleaded with people, send them to my brethren. You know, send Lazarus to my brethren. If one rose from the grave, you know, and, and tells, you know, tells him, Jesus said, even if one were, you know, they're not going to believe. He could talk, he could think, he could uh, grasp spiritual truth. But he was separated from his body because his body went into the grave. His spirit and soul went to hell. 
a, a friend of ours, some of you may know um, Patty Potter, uh, her husband Al, uh, way back in around 94, I guess it was, 1994, <coughs> Cheryl and I and two other couples were spearheading a church plant in uh, San Diego area. And, and Al and Patty, uh, Al came as the first pastor of that church. It's a whole long story. Well, in the providence of God, Al and Patty moved to, uh, well, they're living actually in, um, I think, Holly Springs, but in Apex, I guess. You know, yeah, that's the, you know, the triangle there. I won't call it the Devil's Triangle. But anyway, where you got Holly Springs and Apex and Pukwa, you know, that kind of, you know. Anyway, they moved to Apex, but it's near, you know, but they're at the same church we go to. Well, pa Patty uh, you know, succumbed to cancer Monday. She's about a month younger than I am when she died. Um, which I like to think is still pretty young. You know, I'm not, you know, I may have. I'm older than dirt. <laughs> this, it just looks gray. It doesn't, it, you know. Y'all need to see Alan uh, if you think this is gray. Okay. Um, you know, the memorial service is next Wednesday. I, I'm, I, you know, are they going to have a viewing? I don't know. But I've been, you've been to memorial services or viewings at funeral homes, and you see the, the body of that person. That's not the person. No. Absent from the body is to be, for a believer, present with the Lord. You know where Patty is today? She's with the Lord. She's in heaven. That tabernacle, that body, is just right there. That's all it is. It's a shell. It's a tabernacle. The real Patty is now with the Lord. Whether you're saved and you're absent from the body in heaven or you're lost and you're absent from the body in hell, you're still conscience and thinking. The wages of sin is separation. Physical separation. The spirit and soul separate from the body. Spiritual separation. Sin separates us from a holy God. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the gift of God, eternal life where we're never separated from God. So Romans chapter 10, and we looked at this earlier, but what saith it, the word is near unto thee? Even in your mouth and thine heart, that is the word of faith which we preach. There's the intellectual part, we gotta understand it. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, shall believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead. Uh, so you have to understand what about Jesus. That Jesus died for your sin, that he was buried from your sin, that God raised him from the dead, that if you would believe that with all your heart, you'll be saved. Here's the, uh, the emotional part of it, if you will. For with the heart, man believes unto righteousness. With the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him shall not be ashamed, for there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him, the volition, will. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Intellect, emotion, will. The Hebrews here, the professing believers, didn't exercise volition. 
it's questionable if they really even believed in their heart. Intellectually, they gave assent to it, but they weren't saved at all. Turn your page over. So the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. See, in Romans chapter 10, 17, so faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. You've got to have the word of God, and you've got to believe it. They did not, intellectually they gave assent to it. There's no question about that. They were professing believers. You know, we believe that Jesus was the Messiah, that he was born in Bethlehem and all this other stuff, but they never mixed it with a saving faith. We have to believe. We must believe. The word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. So you can go to church service after church service, Bible study after Bible study, but if you never exercise faith, it'll never profit you one iota. That's what it's saying. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. And actually, you know what I want to do before I move on? I, I, go back. I, want, I skipped over this and I shouldn't. Go back to, in your Bible. Look at Deuteronomy 30. I didn't write it down because it's, it's a longer portion of Scripture, 10 through 20. And this is speaking to the Israelites going into the land. But it's very applicable to what's taking place at the Hebrews uh, portion that we're looking at. It's very applicable to us today. Verse 10 of Deuteronomy chapter 30. For this commandment which I command thee this day, it is not hidden from thee. Uh, verse 10. I'm, verse 10. If thou shalt hearken unto the voice of the Lord thy God, to keep his commandment, his statutes, which are written in this book of the law, and if thou shalt turn unto the Lord thy God with all thine heart, with all thy soul. So you have to exercise intellect, you have to exercise uh, um, emotion, volition, turning unto the Lord thy God with all your heart, hearing the word of God, hearing what's said. Then it says, verse 11, For this commandment which I command thee this day, is, it is not hidden from thee. Neither is it far off. It's not in heaven that thou shouldest say, who shall go up for us to, to heaven and bring it unto us, that we may hear it and do it. Neither is it beyond the sea that thou shouldest say, who shall go over the sea for us and bring it unto us that we may hear it and do it. What God is saying, yeah, there are difficult portions of the word of God. There are no questions about that. But coming to the Lord and knowing him, a simple child can understand. When I say simple, I mean one that might be um, uh, intellectually challenged, emotionally challenged, or whatever, kind, you know, that type of thing. You know, because it's not hidden. Um, it's, it's, when it says in verse uh, 11, it's not hidden from the neither is it far off. God's message of salvation, it's not difficult to find. God's not playing a game. Neither is it in heaven. That one should say, well, we've got to have somebody who can go up to heaven and get the message and come back and bring it to us. Well, how many people have done that? Truly. 
one. Paul. Yeah, but basically no one. Basically no one. Because um, it's here. We don't have to go to heaven to get it. Um, <clears throat> verse 13, neither is it beyond the sea. Now, we can get beyond the sea today a lot easier than they get beyond the sea at that time. But the point is, you don't have to go halfway across the world to try to find out the plan of God. It's right here. It's very simple. Anybody can find it. The word, verse 14, is very nigh unto thee in thy mouth and thy heart that thou mayest do it. It's right here. It's very simple. A child can understand it. Now, he's telling Israel about this. It's not hard. God's not hiding it from us. You don't have to be an intellectual to understand it. Actually, if you're too intellectual, you probably won't understand it. But that's a whole other story. So he says, verse 15, See, I have set before thee this day life and good and death and evil. Very simple. Choose. Here's the volition. I've set two things before you. Life and good. Death and evil. But you have to make the choice. In that I command thee this day to love the Lord thy God, to walk in his ways, to keep his commandments and his statutes and his judgments, that thou mayest live and multiply, and the Lord thy God shall bless thee in the land wherever thou goest to possess it. But if thine heart turn away, so thou wilt not hear, but shall be drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, I denounce unto you this day, then you shall surely perish and that ye shall not prolong your days upon the land whither thou hast passed over Jordan to go to possess it. And I call heaven and earth to record this day against you that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore choose life, that both thou and thy seed may live, that thou mayest love the Lord thy God, and that thou mayest obey his voice, and that thou mayest cleave unto him, for he is your life and the length of thy days. That thou mayest dwell in the land which the Lord thy God swore unto the fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, Jacob, to give them. That's what he's telling the Hebrews. Choose. Life or death. It's not hard. It's not difficult. It's not hidden. It's just believing. Very simple. You don't have to go up into heaven to find out about it. You don't have to go across the seas to find out. It's right here. It's easy to understand. Just respond. But you have to mix it with faith. You just have to believe God's message. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Salvation is a gift. You just have to believe. You have to accept it. Romans 4, 5. But to him that works not, but believes on him that justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. We've got to believe. We've got to have faith. Faith is not a work because it says we're not working, but we have to believe. We have to believe on the Lord and what God says. For God so loved the world, John 3, 16, that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. You have to mix it with faith. The same message is found in the Old Testament, Hebrew Scriptures. Abraham believed in the Lord, Genesis 15, 6. He counted it to him for righteousness. Isaiah says this, Look unto me, and be ye saved. All the ends of the earth. Everybody, look unto God. Don't look to a religion. Don't look to mosaism. 
Don't look to the Catholic Church. Don't look to any religious system. Look unto the Lord, God. Look unto me, the Lord, God, and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God. There is none else. I have sworn by myself the word is gone out of my mouth and righteousness shall not return. <clears throat> that unto me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear. Surely shall one say, in the Lord have I righteousness and strength. In the Lord we have righteousness. Even to him shall men come. And all that are incensed against him shall be ashamed. In the Lord shall all the seed of Israel be justified and shall be glory. And so what the writer of Hebrews said, come to the Lord. Don't go back to Mosaism. Don't go back to the temple worship. Jesus is so much better than all that stuff. And again, it's very applicable today. Don't go back to religion. I don't care what religion it is. Religion will never save you. The book of Habakkuk 2.4. Behold, his soul which is lifted up is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. Our faith in God. So he goes on in verses 3 through 5, and he says this. For we which have believed do enter into rest. As he said, I have sworn in my wrath that they shall enter into my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he spoke in a certain place of the seventh day on this wise, and God did rest the seventh day from all his works, and in this place again, if they shall enter into my rest. The rest starts with salvation. If we believe, we enter into God's rest. And what he does here, he uses creation as an illustration. Although the works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he was, spoke in a certain place of the seventh day in this wise, and God did rest on the seventh day from all his works. So God's plan and his program were finished from the very foundation of the world. In other words, in the mind of God, it was complete. It's only in history that it had to be worked out. Kind of like the rapture. Is the rapture going to happen? It certainly is. Is the seven-year tribulation going to happen? Yeah. Is Jesus returning? Yeah. See, in the, in the mind of God, all of that stuff and more have come to pass. It's just as sure as if it's already happened. That's why sometimes you, you have what, what is called, the, some have referred to as the prophetic Past tense. Think of Isaiah 53. 700 years before the time of Jesus. In the past tense. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was, past tense, bruised for our transgressions. And it goes on in the past tense. Wait a second. That's 700 years before Jesus actually was bruised. Was wounded was buried, and so on, in Isaiah 53. Why could it be in the past tense? Well, one of the reasons, because in the mind of God, it was done. In history, it hadn't been accomplished yet, but in the mind of God, it was complete. And so what he says here, um, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world, 
for he spoke is speaking of, of God's rest. It, it's already established what's going to happen. And then he uses an illustration what God did. God worked seven days and he rested on the seventh day. The end of verse 5, and God did rest the seventh day from all his works. And in this place again, if they shall enter into my rest. Now, did God need to rest? No, he doesn't get tired. But it's an illustration. We need to stop working. You can't work for your salvation. And put your rest, put your trust totally in Jesus. Verse 10, later on in this chapter, we'll get to that next week, but here's what verse 10 of chapter 4 says. For he that entered into his rest, God's rest, he also has ceased from his own works as God did from his. So if you want to enter into God's rest spiritually, you have to cease your works. You have to realize that your religious works merit nothing with God. That your monies that you gave trying to buy your way into heaven doesn't buy you one step into heaven. All of your righteousnesses are as filthy rags. So you have to cease from your works and realize that the only thing that God asked you to do is believe. Faith. When you intellect, you understand it. Emotion, you believe in your heart. And volition, you believe, you accept, you receive Jesus as your Savior. So he uses this illustration in verse 10 of this chapter. Again, D.S. very clear. Stop trying to work for salvation. You'll never get God's rest. Then in verse 6, he says this. Seeing therefore it remains that some must enter therein. Now remember, this is the warning passage. He said, there's some of you that I'm speaking to still need to enter into God's rest. Why haven't they entered into God's rest? They've been doing it their way. They've been keeping the laws to the best of their ability. They've been following religious prescriptions, in this case, mosaism. But they've been following the dictates of a religion, religious works. And so the writer of Hebrews is saying, there remains that some of you must enter therein, into God's rest. You must, see, it, there's the going back to the warning. Don't harden your heart. I fear, I fear that you're not going to enter in because you are mixing it with works. Some of you must enter therein. It's the only way to get to heaven is to cease your efforts and trust totally, 100% in your heart, on the Lord. It's understanding the message. That's the intellect. It's the emotion. With, your, with the heart, man believes unto righteousness, godly sorrow. And it's volition. I believe, Lord, calling upon the name of the Lord. But then look at the last part of verse 6. <clears throat> and they to whom it was first preached entered not in because of unbelief. Now who was the gospel first preached to? To the Jews. Remember what Jesus told the 
his disciples. Go only unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. There, there was that Gentile woman. What was it? Chapter 15 of Matthew. Look, look at chapter 15. I think it's chapter 15. I'll find it quickly if it wasn't. Um, <clears throat> she, she was coming to Jesus. Um, look at verse 21, chapter 15 of Matthew. Then Jesus went thence and departed in the coast of Tyre and Sidon, the, the area of Lebanon. And behold, a woman of Canaan, a Gentile woman, came out of the same coast and cried unto him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, thou son of David. My daughter is grievously vexed with the devil. She was exercised. Not, not, not exorcism with her daughter. <laughs> exercised in her spirit. I have... My daughter has just got major issues, major problems. And when she came to Jesus, she said, O Lord, thou son of David. Now, we don't know how she knew this about Jesus. But her comment here tells us a whole bunch. Son of David is a messianic term. When she referred to Jesus as Lord, thou son of David, she was saying, you're the Messiah. That's what she was saying. You're the promised one of Israel. She had to have heard that message somewhere. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. We don't know where. So intellectually, she understood that Jesus was the Messiah. And so she came to him. She had no hope anywhere else. But how did the followers of Jesus respond? But he answered her not. Well, first, how did he respond? He ignored her. He answered her not a word. And his disciples came and besought him, saying, Send her away, for she cries after us. That's when he says. But he answered and said, I am not sent, but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Jesus didn't pay any attention to her. Now put yourself in this poor woman's sandals. If you would have come to Jesus, your daughter's demon-possessed, you recognize that he's Lord, he's the only hope, he's the Messiah. And you cry out to him, he totally ignores you. How would you respond? <laughs> Natural reaction, exactly. But not only did Jesus ignore him, what did his followers say? Send her away. She's, she's bothering us. She's crying after us. Get rid of her, Lord. She's not part of us. She's a Gentile. She's not part of us. Get rid of her. She's just a pain in the, uh, the tuchus. She's a pain in, the, in, the, in, in our life. Wow. Jesus ignores her, and all the followers say, we don't want her among us. How would you respond? You're already upset. So. Extremely upset. It's going it's to get worse. Uh, it's going to get worse. And then Jesus says to her, I'm not sent but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. I didn't come for you. I came for Jewish people. You're a Gentile. I didn't come for you. How would you feel then? Where is it, Jack? 
hopeless. I mean, there's a lot of emotions you would go, and I don't mean to be picking on just on Joyce here. I mean, just put yourself in her sandals. You know, it's just, you know. So, now, did Jesus lie to her? No. Because he initially came only to the lost sheep of house of Israel. He had to offer the kingdom first to the Jewish people to fulfill his calling. Now, eventually, we, you know, we know what happened. So, but anyway, it doesn't end there. Then verse 25, then came she and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. Not only did she realize that he was the Messiah, but she realized that he was God. Who alone should be worshipped? She worshipped him. She recognized that he was the son of David, the Messiah, that he was very God himself. And if she really believed this, where else would she go? Was there any place else she could go for help? No. So she worshipped him. So what does now Jesus say to her? But he answered and said, it's not proper to take the children's bread to cast it to dogs. You're a dog. I'm not to take the bread and give it to you. You're just a dog. Okay, Joyce, now where are you at? <laughs> you don't have to answer. You're beside yourself. You know, and we're, we, you know, we at all, if we're honest, would be there. And she said, truth, Lord. And Jesus lied. Every word that comes out of his mouth is true. She said, you're right, Lord. I'm a dog. I'm not deserving of even the, uh, of the crumbs from the bread. Yet the dog, well, yet the dog eat of the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Jesus commended her. O woman, great is thy faith. Be it unto thee even as thou wilt. And her daughter was made whole. She exercised faith. She, she had intellect. She knew about Jesus. Now, we don't know how she knew. But to worship him, she had to understand somehow, somewhere, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. He's God. She knew he was the son of David. That's a messianic term from the Old Testament. He's the Messiah. She believed in the heart. She was not willing to go anywhere else. And she kept on coming and she called on the Lord and he commended her for her faith. But a lot of people exercise, you know, will take ridicule and all that for a child, but have our faith in the wrong place. Let me, how many people go to faith healers for healing for their child or something? And, and they go there, and, and it's a sham. It's just a sham. Uh, you know, and they come away, well, and they're, they're, you know, they think they're going to have, you know, they, they have good intentions and, and so on. Well, her faith was obviously based on intellect, the word of God. She believed in her heart and she kept on came and coming and Jesus commended her. But initially the gospel was only to the Jewish people. That was the fulfillment to the lost sheep of house of Israel. When they rejected it, then it went to the world. Now, if, if somebody kept on coming and really believed, God didn't turn her away. He wanted to make sure she believed. She passed with flying colors, and Jesus said, 
um, great is thy faith, um, and so on. But here, here's the thought. The gospel was to the Jew first. Look at, look at Luke 24, 47. And that repentance, Jesus says, and remission of sins should be preached in his, his name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. Who was residing primarily in Jerusalem? Jewish people. <coughs> so ultimately the gospel, Jesus says, is to go out to all nations, repentance and remission of sins should be preached in the name of Jesus among all nations. But you've got to start with the Jews. That's why in, in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. This is not chronological. This is priority. It's always been that way. Take the gospel to the Jew first. Chronologically it happened that way, but also um, historically it happened that way. Chronologically it always is to go to the Jew first, to the Jew first, and also to the Gentile. Now, we've looked at that at other times in more detail, but what it's saying at the end of verse 6 is, and they to whom it was first preached entered it not because of unbelief. See, they didn't mix faith with their understanding, but it was first preached to the Jewish people, and it should always be preached. Now, here's another consideration to the Jew first. Romans 2, 8, 9. But unto them that are contentious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath, tribulation, and anguish upon every soul of man that does evil. The Jew first and also of the Gentile. It seems even in judgment day that judgment first will be meted out on the Jewish people and then the Gentile. It's going to come on to them that are contentious, those that do not obey the truth. Jesus is the truth. Those that um, obey unrighteousness, unsaved people. And they will get indignation, they will get wrath, they will get tribulation, they will get anguish. It will come upon every soul, but it will come on the Jew first. So the gospel goes to the Jew first, scripturally. But in judgment, ultimately, judgment comes as well to the Jew first, and then the Gentile. The end of verse 6, you should have understood. The scriptures were given to you, it came out from you. The Messiah was born of a Jewish, of a woman from, uh, from Israel. He was born in your country. He was born in Bethlehem. He is your Messiah. It was to you first that the gospel was preached, but you did not mix it with faith. You need to come to the Lord. So it's a very sobering. Now, the warning passages pick up in intensity. And when we looked at the first warning passage back in chapter 2 in the first four verses, it, it was really, in a sense, kind of mild. It said, don't let this truth slip by. Don't let it slide by you. Now it gets a little bit more pointed. Don't harden your hearts. Fear if you don't come to the Lord. 
make sure you need to come to God's rest. And as we get into the other warning passages, it picks up in intensity. Until the very last one, it, it just knocks your socks off. That it puts, should put the fear of God in you. Trying to get them to believe. You know, Jude, um, we're about to close. Jude says, some save with compassion and others save with fear. Some people need to hear God loves you and he wants to care for you and yada, 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 yada. So you can come to the, to, to, to the Lord. Others need to hear of, of the fear of the Lord. And both are acceptable ways of sharing Jesus. Usually with a child, you can just share the love of God. Yes, there's penalty. <clears throat> I'll never forget a Jewish believer came to the Lord on a trip to Israel. Seymour Kurtzer. Back in those days, you'd go to Hebron. You don't go to Hebron today unless you have a fortified bus. We went to Hebron, and uh, one of the things we did back in those days in tours of Israel, we went to a glass blower's shop in Hebron. And we went there, and we were standing around and watching them blow glass like they did in biblical days, that type of thing. And uh, little did we know the work that God was doing in the heart of Seymour Kurtzer. He went back to his room, and his wife, Lita, Lita was a believer, right before dinner, and said, said to Lita, said, Seymour said to Lita, said, um, you know, when we were in Hebron this afternoon, and we were watching the glass, glass blower and, the, and that, that, that um, oven and the fire, he, he said, I didn't hear a word anybody was saying. All I could think of was that was hell. And that's where I'm going. I don't want to go to hell. Lita led her husband to the Lord. He came down that night. There's about 150 of us on that tour. Three or four buses. And he stood up. And he said, I want to share what happened today. And he told the story that I just told you. About the fire of the oven at Hebron. And it put the fear of God in him. It put the fear of hell, actually. In them. Some save with compassion, others save with fear. As we move on in the warning passages, he's going to put the fear of God into people. It's an awful thing to the fall into the hands of an angry God. That's one of the last warnings. So here we have a warning passage us and them. It's applicable today. Make sure you've come to the Lord by faith. Understand with your mind, with your intellect, Jesus died for your sins, your sins. He rose from the grave. Believe in your heart, your emotion, godly sorrow. Lord, you took my penalty. You paid my sin penalty. Godly sorrow. 
and then call upon the name of the Lord. Lord, save me. I put my trust totally, completely in you who paid the penalty for my sin. The elect, the emotion, and the will. And once you do that, you pass from death to life. And you'll become a child of God. And these warning passages in Hebrew have no, no reference whatsoever to you. But make sure you've come to the Lord, understanding the gospel, believing it in your heart, calling upon the name of the Lord, and you'll be saved. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the word of God. and uh, the morning Shalom. This is Mark Robinson, Executive Director of Jewish Awareness Ministries, thanking you for listening to our Bible study. These Jewish Awareness podcasts are a teaching ministry of Jewish Awareness Ministries. If you have questions about the study that you just listened to or would like additional information, go to our website, jewishawareness.org, email us at office at jewishawareness.org or call us at 919-275-4477. Shalom.